So here at SCC, we have what we call the nine habits. And the last of those nine is tell the story. Tell the story is the story of the work of God in your life in whatever way um, is appropriate for the discussion, for the time. Um, perhaps it's from lost to found. Tell the story of how you know, God, the shepherd, brought you into the flock. Uh, tell the story about how he's worked in your life in the past. Tell the story about how he's working your life at the present. And, and so I've been thinking a lot about this concept of tell the story this week. Uh, and I've shared some version of my story here and there throughout the years, every once in a while, not a lot, because um, you'd get tired of hearing about me all the time. I do. So I thought I'd share, though, just a smidge uh, again today because it fits the theme for the day here. Uh, and even if your story isn't this theme today, even if your story isn't one of being burned by Christians, it is helpful for us, for all of us, to be honest about the sources of our hurt and our pain. So here's where my story fits today. I am even currently working through pain and hurt and anger that are largely rooted for me in church hurt that started way back in my early college years. I know some of y'all hear way back and you think, that's not that far back. It's 25 years, people. So for me, a lot of that church hurt kind of started back in my early college years. You see, I loved, and I can hardly overstate this, I loved my home church family. I did, and I do. It's where I committed my heart to Jesus in earnest. Uh, it's where I dedicated my life to serving God. It's where I first learned uh, to be a leader and began to be mentored for ministry. It's where I learned what serving to support a greater mission than me was all about. Uh, I loved my church, and I was cared for in my home church. My best friends were there. And, and I mean, my best friends were there. <laughs> we didn't just do church together. We did all of life together. I loved these people, and they loved me. So my home church was such a foundational place for me. It's not an exaggeration to say that my personal identity was tied into my church family experience. Now, a big part of why my home church uh, was so important to me was because up to that point, my family had experienced a lot of what I'm going to call geographical instability. Um, my dad was a pastor and a professor, and we kind of moved a lot. Um, some of y'all experienced this in growing up years. Um, by the time I was 13, I had been in seven houses, in six school districts, in four churches, in six cities, in four states. Instability had sort of become the norm for me in at least our family, at least geographically. Healthy family, great family, but geographically very unstable. And so this church, my home church family, became for me a place of stability and health and safety. And, and really, it's not too much to say real personal security. For the first time in my life, I felt a very strong and a healthy sense of place and belonging outside of my own family. But that all in early college years uh, came to a pretty abrupt end. So long story, very complicated story short, uh, my dad was not well protected by leadership and we got wrapped up in the worship wars of the 80s and the 90s and we were basically forced to leave. So, so just like that, I felt like the safety and the security and the sense of, of place and belonging that I had finally found were all taken away uh, in this circumstance 
at the hands of people who I thought cared for me and my family. At the time, (laughs) and today, (laughs) it feels like an injustice. I was powerless to maintain my identity, my place of security, uh, and it hurt. And I still struggle with anger about it, to be honest. (laughs) And then, uh, wouldn't you know it, in God's providence, God's called me to process this hurt and and, and pain and anger uh, while working in the same environment that created it. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) Friends, church hurt is real. Church hurt is real. It's easy to act like it's not and to sanctify it in some sort of category that's not like the rest of pain and hurt and anger in our lives, but it's real. And the reason is, is that the church offers lasting peace and love and safety and a relationship with God. But it all too easily becomes an environment that is marked by the sins of the people in it more than the gospel of freedom that it's meant to offer. In many Christian communities, we too easily become a place of legalism, shame, rejection, betrayal, gossip, hypocrisy, and even abuse. Church hurt is real, and I'm sure, I'm sure many of y'all have stories like that that would fit today. Maybe you've been burned by Christians. Maybe you've been burned by Christians who were more worried about measuring how you looked or, acted, or looked or acted externally than the condition of your heart internally. If that's you, you're not alone. Me too. Many of us too. Maybe you've been burned by Christians who shamed you publicly for something you said or you did. Uh, when you didn't deserve it, maybe even for something that happened in your family uh, that you didn't bear any personal responsibility for, if you have experienced that, you're not alone. Me too. Many of us too. Maybe you've been burned by Christians who gossiped about you and people you thought were your friends were saying something different behind your back. If that's you, you're not alone. (laughs) Me too. A lot of us too. Maybe, maybe you've been burned by people who claimed to follow Christ, who were abusive in some form or fashion, spiritually, emotionally, perhaps even physically or sexually. If that's you, you're not alone. Me too. Many of us too. At the outset, let me just say, if that's any of you, genuinely, I'm sorry that you've experienced that. Church hurt is real. You see, when you've experienced that church hurt, when you've been burned by Christians, what too easily happens is that instead of going away from those relationships and that context with a sense that God loves you and you are cared for and that things are going to be okay, you go away having learned a perverted gospel where not only is grace conditional, but so is the acceptance of those who claim to be a people of grace. We preach in yet. It's easy to go away with the sense that the people of God, that the church is not always a safe place to pursue meaningful relationship with God. So given all that, the question for us today <laughs> is how do, we come, how do we become people who do our part to prevent burning people? 
so that instead of hindering people from finding and following Jesus, we become people and a context and a church community that is about helping people find and follow Jesus. There's a huge difference because when our sin rules the roost, we will disciple people into the image of us instead of Jesus. That's not the Great Commission. We must learn to, in simple terms, we're going to unpack this, we must learn to love sacrificially. We must learn to love sacrificially like Jesus so that the gospel of Christ and his loving sacrifice for us is what's communicated in our relationships with one another. We must learn to love sacrificially like Jesus in both our relationships with believers and with non-believers. And the Apostle Paul here in Romans 12 addresses both of those types of relationships in our passage in Romans 12. You see, this issue of living and loving sacrificially like Jesus was important in the context of Romans 12 uh, because the church to whom Paul was writing was made up of two kinds of sort of Christians there, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. They came from different, very different cultural backgrounds, very different religious backgrounds. They practiced their faiths very differently when they became Christians. And, and, and listen, we've got that kind of environment here today. We've got folks from distant lands like Mosheim. And, and Bailton and Chucky and, you know, sort of like that. But in this church in Rome, um, there were different dynamics going on in how they expressed their faith and what they came from. So they were coming into some conflict about um, church stuff. And some people were being burned here and there in the process. So because of that, Paul writes this very important verse, verse 9. We're going to simmer on this for a while. We're going to marinate here in uh, 12.9. It says this. This is the principle for the church in Rome to remember. Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Now we're going to marinate here in verse 9 because it lays down a tremendously important principle for our relationships with believers and with non-believers. He says this. Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. Because apparently <laughs> there is such a thing as fake love, right? Like there is love that is not love. And it's fake because Paul is demonstrating here because Jesus is the standard. It's fake because it's motivated by self. It's fake because it's all about getting for me. That's what fake love, according to Paul's uh, principle here, that's what fake love really is. You see that the word that he uses here for love is a word we've probably heard a number of times if you've been in church for a while, the word agape, A-G-A-P-E. He uses the word agape here, and agape is a self-sacrificing love that looks like God's sacrifice for us in Jesus. If you're taking notes, write that down. Agape is a self-sacrificing love. That's real, genuine love, he says. Let love be genuine. A self-sacrificing love that loves like God's sacrifice for us in Jesus. That's the model. And Paul uses this word agape here because um, he wants to sort of take it from the wider culture. Meaning he uses this word a lot in his writings when it was not used much in the wider culture because he wants to co-opt it to use it to describe Christian love as a self-sacrificing love that looks like God's sacrifice for us in Jesus. And what he's saying in here at verse 9 is that in order for love to be genuine, it has to have a certain direction to it. It has to have a certain direction to it, which is the second half of verse 9. That's why he says this, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Which is, a, if you think about it, it's a bit of a, a weird thing, right to say in the heels of, let love be genuine. <laughs> He's like, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. 
So like, what's the connection? What's let love got to do with abhor what is evil? Or in the words of Tina Turner, what's love got to do? Got to <laughs> Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? You might not have known this, but she was studying Romans 12, 9 when she wrote. No, it was sad. Thank you for pretending to laugh. Tina got it wrong because the love that is for self is not genuine love. Love that has a direction of the other is genuine love because, second half of verse 9, it abhors what is evil and clings to what is good. In other words, genuine love has a direction that is outward, that is selfless, a direction that abhors evil and holds fast to goodness. Meaning when he says abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, he's saying that love is real, it's genuine, when that love leads a person away from evil and toward what is good. That's the direction of the love that is sacrificial like Jesus. So in all of our relationships, relationships, whether with believers or with non-believers, all of our relationships, whether with believers or with non-believers, love that is real, that is good-oriented, that is Christ-like, that is sacrificial, will sacrifice of self in order to make that godliness in others happen. So let me say that most simply, love sacrifices self to produce godliness in others. We'll put this on screen for you here. Love sacrifices self to produce godliness in others. Think about this for a second. This is this is radical. <laughs> this is radical love. We live in a world that looks at this definition and thinks, that doesn't even make sense. <laughs> you see, fake love, worldly love, that ends up hurting people because it's rooted in preservation of self, always gets. People who love like that don't understand that the gospel was the opposite of that. We are called, on the contrary, <laughs> to sacrifice self for others like Jesus did. That's, that's what love really is. That's a huge, radical idea. That in, that in our marriages, that in our families, that in our relationships with others at work, uh, that the direction of our, what we call love, becomes real when that relationship is one that produces godliness in them. You love somebody the moment you ask questions about how can I create an environment in my relationship with this person so that Jesus becomes real in them? That's a radically different concept than what we're taught and what we intuit from others. And then what we buy into because we don't know what to do with our hurt and our pain and our anger and our sin. So we walk around with this fake love that gets, gets, gets. Instead of one that reflects the kind of godly love that sacrifices like the cross. So, so with this principle in mind, which is a high calling, I admit, <laughs> with this principle of sacrificial love like Jesus in mind, how do we do that? What does that love look like? Good question. Here in Romans 12, if verse 9 sets the tone with this principle about love, it talks about it practically 
in two contexts of relationship, as we've mentioned already, believers and non-believers. It does so in verses 10 to 13 with believers, and then in 14 through 21 in non-believers. This is what it looks like, Paul says in the rest of this passage, this is what it looks like to love in a way that, that produces godliness in others. And before we jump into the text, we're going to do this a little different than normally. Um, we're not going to unpack all these verses as much as we normally would. I want you to hear them as, as the first readers would have, which is as practical suggestions from Paul for how you live out verse 9. As if you were in a context that needed to hear them because, well, you are. So hear them as practical suggestions for how to live out this principle of verse 9. And I would like to suggest that as you read, we'll get into the text in just a second, bear with me, you pick out a phrase from each of those two sections, just one phrase from that section uh, with believers and one phrase from that section with non-believers that, that applies to you most, that you know you need to, to think about, to marinate on, to pray about. And, and this week to, to think about that, to pray about it and say, Lord, help me to, to love sacrificially in a way that produces godliness in the other person based on verse, <laughs> or this phrase in verse whatever. Uh, for me, <laughs> um, it's the second half of verse 10 uh, in, in the believer's part. Outdo one another in showing honor uh, because I love to get glory for myself. And that's the sin of pride. And then the second half of verse 16, uh, never be wise in your own sight. <laughs> I love thinking that I'm wise. And again, that's the sin of, notice a pattern, pride. Yeah, of course you notice a pattern because you know how messed up I really am. Everybody else sees it more than we do. Woo, truth there. Okay, so let's read this together and pick out your two ways uh, to, love, <laughs> to love in a way that produces godliness in others. With believers, 10 through 13, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Pick out your phrase there. And then in 14 to 21, which apply the love principle we talked about to our relationships with non-believers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What phrase... Do you need to simmer with, marinate with, talk to the Lord about, memorize? That, that, that's the way that you need to practically live out this principle of 
Christ-like sacrificial love. Uh, I want to close by telling you about a friend briefly, real briefly, about a friend who got burned by the church. He got burned big time. Uh, This was a guy uh, who was as good as they come. Definition of a humble servant, selfless, loving, in ways that, that embody verse 9 that Paul talked about there. I mean, this guy held fast to what is good. When you were with this guy, um, you had a sense that you were the most important person, not just in the room, but in the world. And that's just kind of the way he made you feel when you were with him. He made, he made everyone feel that way. But one day, in uh, a terrible tragedy, after having experienced years of the worst of legalism, shame, rejection, betrayal, gossip, hypocrisy, and terrible abuse, and simply because his accusers didn't know what to do with their own pain, hurt, anger, or sin, and because he seemed like an easy target, (laughs) he was killed by being tortured on a cross. When we say me too, it's because we serve a God who has said me too. Friends, Christ sacrificed himself in order to produce godliness in you. You can do the same for others. That's that's what this is. When you say, I follow Christ, it's to a cross on which we die. And we agree to love sacrificially like He has for us. So instead of, instead of burning or, or shaming or rejecting or hurting people, for self. Let's love them into the presence of Christ by using the sacrificial methods of Christ. They're the only way that others will learn what Christ has done for them. You can't manipulate people into the body. You you will twist and pervert the gospel. Let's love them into the presence of Christ by using the sacrificial methods of Christ. Hey, have you been burned by Christians? (laughs) Me too. I understand. Many people in this room understand. We serve a God who in Jesus understands better than any of us could. He was rejected because we were the ones rejecting Him. Listen, friends, something has to be done with sin. (laughs) And every Sunday morning, we have a team of people who are praying about this service and about you. Um, They've been praying, in fact, for 
you during this service, that you would listen to God's voice, that you would have the courage to say yes to his prompting inside you. Maybe you need to talk to someone about your story, maybe with church hurt, maybe with not. That takes courage, but the courage to share is a step toward that healing. Maybe you know that today is the day that you identify with Christ in baptism, you commit to the church to be a part of us. Maybe you're need in prayer. Uh, maybe there are things going on in your life that you just need people to come alongside with you and, and say, yeah, me too. We'd love to be a place where that's a safe thing for you. Maybe you're in need of prayer. Maybe you have questions. Maybe you have doubts about what following Jesus is all about. Um, this is a place to begin that conversation in safety. So in just a moment, uh, after we pray together, we're going to sing. And during that song, we'd invite you to come forward and take that next step of faith uh, in whatever way you need. Let's go ahead and pray together, friends. Lord God, we come to you asking that you would uh, continue to speak to us. We are forever grateful for your son, Jesus, um, that he is a model for us, that he teaches us how to live, that he shows us what real love is like, uh, and that he demonstrated that love on the cross for us in ways that produced for us godliness we could not produce ourselves. Father, teach us to tell the story of your work in our lives so that as we do that, we will continue to take steps toward loving people into your presence because we have rightly understood the way you worked in our lives. Father, teach us to love people into your presence using your methods of sacrificial love. Forgive us for the ways in which we have done the opposite and perverted the gospel for self. Teach us to say yes, Lord, to your work in us. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.